Hallelujah. If you brought your Bible, please join me in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 6 this morning. As we come to the Word of the Lord, we come to the famous Sermon on the Mount. These are the words of Jesus as he delivers this powerful inauguration of the kingdom of God. And in chapter 6, we'll start reading at verse 9. Our focus this morning will be on verse uh, 13. But I want us to read the entire prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Jesus said, pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Father God, we thank you this morning for the opportunity and privilege you've granted us as your children to come into your house of prayer. I ask now that you would anoint my lips of clay to teach and preach the word of the living God. And I ask you to anoint the hearing of this congregation as we reflect upon the mighty ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. That you would make clear to us that he is forever living to intercede for us and on our behalf. We ask that you would anoint me to preach your word and anoint your people to hear the word preached in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, you may be seated tonight, or this morning, I should say. The Lord's Prayer, often repeated uh, and often quoted, is uh, given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ here in this account on the Sermon on the Mount. And I believe rather than given to us as something to repeat uh, in a repetitive and perhaps a mindless way, that Jesus gives us the Sermon on the Mount as a pattern for prayer. He teaches us five important parts of prayer, and I'll walk through them quickly this morning with you. Uh, We're going to focus on the doxology of this prayer in just a moment. I want you to notice these five things that Jesus taught us about prayer. First of all, he teaches us that prayer begins with worship. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. This is worship to God. And all prayer should begin in that place of worship. The Bible says that we enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. And so this is the starting point. Uh, many times we skip ahead to the petition or to the request. But God uh, is a king. He's to be honored. He's to be reverenced. And we are to come to him, first of all, in worship. Then we see the second part of prayer is submission. We see Jesus teach us like this. He says, submit, saying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is inviting God and uh, uh, to rule and reign in our life. And we submit to his authority, to his rule, and to his will. How many of you receive the will of God? I was a weak amen, but I'll take it this morning. Submission is not the easiest part of prayer, is it? It's the part that requires sometimes bitter tears and difficult experience to teach us the importance of submitting to the will of God. And the Bible uh, tells us that God's will is perfect, and it is perfecting in our lives as well. Then we reach the third part of the prayer. That's the petition, the request. And he says, he teaches us to pray like this, Give us this day our daily bread. 
And he teaches us that God the Father cares about our unique, specific, personal, and private needs. Even the smallest need, like the need for daily bread. Uh, the most obvious, the most basic of all needs, God cares. And he wants us to bring our petition to him. And maybe we say, well, if God already knows what I need, then why do I need to ask? Because uh, God is glorified in our asking. He's glorified in us acknowledging that he is able and that he is willing to do these good things in our life. Jesus says later in the Sermon on the Mount and later on his teaching in prayer in the book of Luke, he says, ask and it will be given unto you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you. He teaches us the disposition of the heart of God. The willingness of the heart of God is to give us the requests of our heart. But we must bring them to him in prayer. Number four is confession. We come to God confessing our sin, our need for his forgiveness. He says, forgive us this day, uh, pardon, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus teaches us to pray as people who humbly acknowledge that we have sinned against God, that we are flawed and imperfect beings, and that we need the help of God in our daily spiritual life. He teaches us confession because of the great power there is in confession. The psalmist said, as long as I did not confess my sins, it was like rottenness to my bones. The psalmist is saying, as long as I refused to acknowledge my sin and my weakness before God, then it was like a sickness to my body. I was weak, I was frail. But then when I confessed my sin to God, then power came, strength came, forgiveness came. And this uh, this power can be yours and mine every day as we confess our sin to God and our need for his forgiveness. And how many of you are glad that you've been forgiven by the almighty God? And then he teaches us to forgive as well. He says, just as you are forgiven by God, we are also to forgive. This is part of our confession. But then he teaches us again to worship. That's the fifth part. And he, he closes off the prayer with a doxology. He says, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Five things there. Notice it's like a sandwich. Worship, submission, petition, confession, worship. He begins right back where he ended. He begins in the same place of adoration and worship to the living God. I don't know if you've realized this or not, but the Bible says that God abides in the praises of his people. When people, when God's people begin to worship him, God shows up in their life. And when we come into his presence, we come in singing, we come in with worship. This is a, a reality that is uh, uh, so important in our spiritual life that we understand that God loves to hear us sing. He loves to hear, hear us worship him. To acknowledge Him, to extol Him, to magnify Him, to boast in Him, to brag about Him. If uh, that's a little uh, word maybe more familiar to you. And when you do that, God shows up. He manifests Himself in your life. I think about this. Maybe you're having a family dinner. The kids are in the other room. 
And then you start talking about, you say, oh, you know what? Little Johnny hit a home run last week in the little, little league game. Nobody called Johnny. You didn't even say it loud enough for Johnny to hear it. But don't you know Johnny's going to show up right there? What, mama? What did you say? Why? Because, uh, it, it, we're attracted by, uh, worship. We're attracted by, by that sense of, of, of being appeal, uh, we're appealed to by that sense of being spoken of highly. God shows up when you worship Him. So next time you're going through a trial, just start saying, you know what? God hit a home run in my life last time. And I know God's gonna hit another home run in my life this time. And I know that God is able to heal. And I know that God is able to deliver. And before you know it, His presence will come and invade that situation in your life. Now, I want to take this time this morning to deal with this doxology. This expression of worship to God. It's found here in Matthew, and it says this. Three things about Christ, and three things about God. It says, yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. Let's say that together this morning. Yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. Now, I could hardly hear you, so you're going to have to speak up this morning. Let's say it again together. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. First of all, we notice that that Jesus tells us something about God and about himself. He says, yours is the kingdom. The kingdom belongs to God. The Bible describes God's government as a kingdom. The government of heaven is not a democracy. We're familiar with democracy and uh, perhaps so, so familiar that we think that God is also um, uh, a democracy and that God is led by majority opinion and majority rule. But God is not concerned with the opinion of the majority. God is concerned with his own purpose and his own will. And his government is a kingdom. In a kingdom, you have the rule of a monarch, the rule of a king. The Bible teaches us that Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God. He came to announce that the government of heaven had come to the earth and that he was the representative of that kingdom. He came announcing to us that he was the fulfillment of God's promise to establish his kingdom upon the earth. And the day is coming when Jesus will establish his physical kingdom on the earth. But in this moment, we're living under the spiritual kingdom of God. This this kingdom is just like every other kingdom on the earth. It has a king. His name is Jesus. It has a constitution. That's the Bible, the word of God. It has a set of laws. And these laws, if they are violated, will leave you out of the blessing of God. If they are honored and obeyed, will bring you in to the blessing of God. Of God. How many of you want to live in the kingdom of God? We've been talking about reigning in life. In order to reign in life, you must understand that you are a part of a kingdom. The apostle Paul said it like this. He said, our citizenship is in heaven and, uh, and where, where the, where the Lord is. And so our citizenship is not primarily or first of all to the United States or to the nation that you were born in, but our primary allegiance is to the kingdom of God. And to the will of God on the earth. Now the Bible teaches us in the book of Daniel chapter 2. That Daniel uh, interprets a vision for King Nebuchadnezzar. And the king had been given a dream. And in this dream he saw the kingdoms of the earth. He saw a statue. And the statue had a head of gold. And then it had the, the, the chest made of silver. 
And the waist was made of bronze or brass. The legs were made of iron. And the, the feet and the toes were uh, made of iron mixed with clay. I want you to notice a couple things about this. First of all, notice the descending order of the metals. The metals go from gold to dirt. And that is ultimately the revelation of that was that the kingdoms of this earth are going to decrease in value. They're going to decrease in strength. They're going to decrease in wisdom until the coming of the Lord. This uh, this image was a prophecy of the kingdoms that were going to arise in the world. The gold represented Babylon. The silver represented of Greece, of pardon Persia. The the brass represented Babylon. The legs of iron represented Rome. And the iron mixed with clay represents the final kingdoms of the earth. The iron representing totalitarianism and the clay representing democracy. And then ultimately it represents the kingdom of the Antichrist, which is yet to come upon the earth. We're living today in a world divided by east and west and in a world divided by totalitarianism and democracy. These are the final kingdoms of the earth. I don't know how long you think it'll take for Jesus to come. I don't know how long it will be either, but I know this thing. We're coming to the end of the world system. The Bible said that when the king saw this dream, he saw this great image, it troubled him. Why? Because he saw, he saw a stone that had been cut without human hands coming out of heaven. And it struck the bottom of that statue. It struck its feet. And when it struck its feet, all of that statue came crumbling down. And the stone became a great mountain. He was troubled because he didn't understand this dream. And Daniel said to him, this is the interpretation of that dream. He told him basically this, Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdoms of this world are going to descend and they're going to fall and crumble to the ground. But there is one coming who's not coming out of Washington, D.C. He's not coming out of London or he's not coming out of, out of Tokyo. He's not coming out of any other place. He's coming out of heaven. His name is Jesus. He is the stone which the builder rejected. And he is going to reign or come to the earth and bring down the systems and the kingdoms of this earth. And his kingdom is going to fill the entire earth like a great mountain. Come on, somebody. Jesus Christ when he comes, will be declared by every nation, tribe, and tongue, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's why we say yours is the kingdom. Say it again this morning. Yours is the kingdom. Now this kingdom has a constitution. It's the word of God. And it has laws. Now we know the laws of the kingdom are not the same as the laws of the Old Testament. These laws are different. The laws of the kingdom is the law of love. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And to love God more than anything else in your life. This kingdom has laws like the law of sowing and reaping. That you, uh, you receive what you sow. And that you, when you invest, when you give, you receive back. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over will men bring into your bosom. This kingdom has the law of forgiveness. That when you let someone off the hook and you let go of the past, God says, I'll bring you into a brighter future. This kingdom teaches us the law of grace that we have received from God favor, unmerited, undeserved, but all altogether gracious gift from God. This kingdom is a kingdom of God's 
power living and dwelling on the inside of the human being through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The law of the Spirit is what the Apostle Paul calls it. And so now we have power over sin and power over temptation and power over the devil because there's a new law living on the inside of us. It's the person of the Holy Spirit. This kingdom has laws. When you obey the laws of the kingdom, you receive the blessing of the king. When you disregard the laws of the kingdom, you, the kingdom, you stay outside of the blessings of the king. And so this morning I've come to remind you that you are a part of a kingdom. Your father is the king of kings and the lord of lords. He has the last word over your life. You're not a beggar. You're not a pauper. You're not broke. You're not abandoned. You're not an orphan. You are, you are a child of the king. You are a prince. You are a son of the living God. You are provided for. You are blessed beyond your understanding. You are God's child. Come on somebody. Jesus Christ, king of kings and lord of lords. And you are heirs and joint heirs with Jesus. His is the kingdom. And all the kingdoms of this earth, all they can do is decline. The kingdom of God, all it can do is advance. Jesus said this. He said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest seed sown by the sower. But when it is full grown. When God's kingdom purpose is full grown. It becomes like a tree. And even the birds nest in its branches. Listen when the kingdom of God touches your life. There's only one thing that can happen. That's increase happens in your life. You begin to grow. You begin to mature. You begin to become the man and the woman that God desires for you to be. Come on, somebody. You may not be where you want to be, but you're not where you were. And God will guarantee that you get where you need to go because you are a part of the kingdom of God. Say it again. His is the kingdom. Then we read yours is the power. His word power. Speaks of ability. What can God do? What power does God have? Well, we understand this about Jesus, that Jesus is the agent of the creation. God the Father willed the creation. God the Son created. God the Holy Spirit administered the creation and hovered over the waters at the beginning. And so we see that Jesus is the agent of the creation. He's the voice, the logos of the creation. The Bible says that through him all things came into being and without him nothing has come into being that has come into being. All of life, all of human existence, the entire existence of the universe comes out of the word of Jesus Christ, out of the very mouth of God. Now you're telling me that our God does not have power? Oh friend, He has absolute unquestioned power. He is almighty God. Give Him praise because He is the almighty God. The all-powerful God. This all-powerful and mighty God works on behalf of the believer. His power is made available to people who believe. It's like the mighty power of a, of a power uh, plant. That's producing energy far beyond our ability to understand it. And if we tried to, if we tried to, uh, understand, if we tried to uh, touch it, it would be absolutely destructive to our, to our body, uh, destroy our life. 
But if you, if you take the right kind of appliance and plug it into the wall, all the power in that power plant comes right in the right way to your house to get that, uh, to get that device working, to get that phone charged, to get that blender to blend. It comes to do uh, the work uh, now that you couldn't do without it. But now you have access to extraordinary power. This connection that you and I have is, the, is called faith. And when we connect our faith to God, we plug into a source of unbelievable power. And that power becomes available to you, to the believer, by faith. Come on, is there any faith in the house of God this morning? The Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please God. But when you come by faith and you connect to God, you ask God for the things that are are needed in your life. You connect to Him and you walk with Him in faith. All of a sudden now the power of God is available in your life. Maybe you asked this morning, what can God do for me? What is God able to do in my life? What's His power for? Well, Hebrews 7.25 tells us that God is able to save. The ability of God is first of all directed toward man in order to bring salvation to man. Man needs salvation. Man is lost without God and without hope according to Ephesians chapter 2. Dead in trespasses and in sins. Without the power of Christ to change your life and to save you, friend, you'll die and go to an eternal hell. But God has made His power available to you because He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the cross. And on the cross, He gave His life for you and for me. This, this sacrifice of the cross made the power of salvation available to the believer. The Apostle Paul says the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved. Is there anybody in here that's saved? If that just says to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Come on, if you're saved and you know it, give God praise this morning. Because you have learned and experienced the power, the saving power of God. They tell about a man who used to, to steal uh, railroad ties from the railroad. The, these, uh, the nails, the the. the the ties, the clavels, and uh, he would uh, he would take the iron and sell it. And so they decided they were going to use him as an experiment. They educated him. They put him through college. They gave him four years of the finest education. And when he was done, he went and stole the whole railroad. Come on, somebody. You've got to be careful because education can't save. Money can't save. And, uh, and fame can't save. The only one that can save that has power to convert the human spirit and to change the human life is Jesus. Jesus alone can save. He has the power. The Bible says he is able to save to the uttermost, to the extreme, those who come to God by him. He said, well, sure, if you come to God in a suit and tie, of course he'll save you. No, friend, you come to God being at the bottom of the barrel covered by sin and darkness, he'll save you then too. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God by faith. Come on, if you're saved and you know it again, shout amen. What else can he do? Jude chapter 1 verse 24 says he's able to save, but he's also able to keep. It says he's able to keep you from falling. Have you ever felt like you were falling, slipping in your faith, that your feet were on the ragged edge of destruction? Well, friends, God says he is able to save you. He walks beside you to keep you from falling, to keep you from stumbling. Many of us here would have already fallen. We would have already uh, lost our way. But the grace of God, the power of God was working on our behalf. 
to give us a sure-footedness in our walk with Christ. This is the power of the gospel this morning. That God is not only to save you, able to save you, but He's able to keep you saved. I don't come to preach to you a salvation that's wishy-washy. I've come to tell you that if you come to Jesus, He'll save you and He'll keep you. And He'll hold on to you until He brings you into His Father's house. Come on, somebody give God praise for His grace operating in our life. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, it says he's able to help. He is a present help in the day of trouble, says the psalmist. Do you need help this morning? God is able to help. You might need, you might need a lot of money and there's not enough. Uh, there are people who would like to help, but they are not able to help. You might need a cure for cancer. And there are a lot of people, a lot of doctors who would like to help, but they're not able to help. You might need a, a, a wayward son to come home. There's a lot of people who would love to help. They can't help. There's no power in man. Man's power runs out after a certain place. But there's power in God. And if you call upon Him by faith, He says you come into the throne of grace and you will find help in the time of your need. Come on, God is able to help you this morning. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't throw in the towel. You can make it. God is your help and your strength. He is your constant uh, companion in the day of trouble. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 21 says that God is able to subdue all things under our feet. He is able to bring the powers of darkness and the powers of hell under the authority of the blood of Jesus and the the believer this morning. God is able to subdue it. I don't know what giant you're facing or what challenge you're facing, but God is able to bring it from over your head to under your feet. Come on, somebody. That's the power of God in your life. Right now, some of you are standing on things that used to be standing over you, but you experience the power of God in your life. Come on. You and I need the power of God working and and, and actively uh, participating in our life. In fact, what you need to do for God, your call for, for, for uh, your call from God will require the power of God. If God lets you do it without Him, you'll say, "Look what I did." But when you realize that what God called you to do, you can't do without Him. Guess what we'll say? This was God's doing. This was the work of the Lord. God did this. God is able uh, to subdue all things under our feet. Ephesians three twenty. One of my favorites, it says he is able to do exceeding and abundantly above. Come on, that's exciting, isn't it? What is God able to do? He, it says he is able to do uh, exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or even imagine. You think of the biggest prayer request you've ever had before God. And God says, I can exceed that. I can go beyond that. I can do more than that. Come on, somebody. And I can do not only more than what you ask, but more than what you think. Come on, we haven't even imagined what God wants to do in our lives. But by faith that we will walk with Him and continue in His steps, He'll do things that far exceed our wildest expectations. God is able. The power belongs to Him. The power belongs to Christ. And, and why does it belong to Christ? Colossians tells us why. Because at the cross... He disarmed the devil. He took away his power. He took away his authority. And he made a public spectacle of him, having triumphed over him. And so this morning you and I stand, uh, having access to the almighty power of God. Jesus said, you will receive power. Shout power. He said, you will receive power. When? When you deposit a check, 
No. When? When you get a degree? No. When? When you attend, when you attend a particular seminar? No. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Come on church, we have received the indwelling power of the living God. On the inside of you and I is the Almighty God dwelling and living with all power and all glory. And so what do we say? Oh, I can't make it. What are you talking about? You can't make it. You have the power of God dwelling on the inside of you. Get up, square your shoulders, dust off your knees, and go forward in the name of Jesus. You are more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ, your King. The power is yours. And then we read, and yours is the glory. Say that with me this morning. Yours is the glory. Glory is what the heart of man seeks. It seeks for glory, for recognition. Our human pride desires to be acknowledged. Someone has aptly said, if you don't toot your own horn, it won't be tooted. So we have to toot it, right? We have to let people know how much glory there is in our life. But God says no to his church. He says, no, don't seek your own glory. Seek my glory. Seek my fame. He tells us in the book of Isaiah, I have created you for my glory. We weren't created for ourselves. We were created for the glory of God. Your gifts, your talents, your abilities, all of them were made for the glory of God. Say that with me this morning. I was made for the glory of God. He says, I saved you for my glory. Jesus died on the cross, not just for us, but for himself, for his glory, for his fame, for his praise. And the Apostle Paul adds to this and he says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might for the glory of God. Well, no one's watching. No one is seeing what I'm doing. The boss is away. Maybe I can slack off a little. God says, no, you do it right You work hard when no one's watching because it's for my glory. Because I am the one who's given you strength and life. I'm the one who has called you out of darkness and into the light. I want you to live and work and and worship and and serve for my glory, for my sake. The psalmist says in Psalm, sorry, Isaiah says in Isaiah 26, he says, Oh God, your name and your fame is the desire of our hearts. Is that the desire of your heart this morning, Kingsway Church, to say, God, I want you to be glorified in my life. I want you to receive praise from my life. My life, whether it be long or short, let it be lived for the glory of God. Whether it be rich or poor, let it be lived for the glory of God. Whether it be influential with many or with few, let it be lived for the glory of God. Come on, there has to be a church on the earth. If we're going to make a difference at all, there has to be a church on the earth that says, I'll turn my back to selfish pride. I want Christ to receive the glory from my life. I want Christ to be exalted and to be lifted up high through my life, through my conduct, through my speech, through the attitude of my heart. His is the glory. The book of, of, of Romans chapter 11 introduces us to this concept in a very important way. It talks to us about the nation of Israel. And the Jewish people, how they've endured so much trouble throughout their existence. The Jewish people blessed the world in so many ways that 
that would be impossible for me to count uh, them all this morning. But there's two ways primarily that they have blessed the world. The greatest blessing of all, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is a Jewish man. He is the Jewish Messiah. He's become our Savior because of our, our faith in Him. He was God's gift to the world. But He had to come through a family. And that family was the Jewish nation. The second gift I would mention would be the Word of God. The Bible, 66 books entirely written by Jewish people. Every single word by a Jewish man. God's covenant people. And what a price they have paid to be God's covenant covenant people. To be the bearers of the seed of the Messiah. To be the carriers of the word of God. They've been displaced so many times from their homeland. Pushed around by governments and dictators. And this hasn't ended even to this day. Anti-Semitism continues even now. But here's what Isaiah, here's what Romans 11 tells us. It tells us that these people have gone through all of these things for the glory of God. He tells us at the very end of chapter 11. He says, for from him and through him and to him is are all things. And to him be the glory forever. How are you just to learn that little formula and carry it around in your mind? From him, through him and to him. Why has Israel suffered so much as a nation? This was from God. God gave them this call. God gave them this uh, responsibility. God gave them this, this challenge. Maybe you feel like what you're bearing is too much for you. And I want to just encourage you, if it came from God, if you are suffering for His sake, if you're carrying a burden too great because God gave it to you, then you can trust in the next part of this formula through Him. How have they endured? They've endured through the almighty providence of God. They've endured through the strength of God working on behalf of His people. And how will you endure? How will you get through this season that you're in? This challenging phase of life. How will you survive it? You'll survive it through Him. It's through His grace, through His presence, through His power working in your life. So that we can say as the psalmist, if it had not been for the Lord who was on my side, I would have been swallowed up whole by my my enemies. But I'm still here. I'm still standing because of the grace of the Almighty God. Come on somebody. You can make it through Him. Without Him, You'll never make it. But through Him, you will make it. And you'll make it victorious to the end. And then He says, from Him, through Him, to Him, unto His glory, unto His fame, unto His purpose are all things. To Him be the glory. Is your life pointing toward Him? Are are your attitudes facing toward Him? Is the conduct uh, and the disposition of your life one that says, God, Whatever I face, it's unto you. I'm doing, I'm doing what I'm doing for you. For your glory in my life. His is the glory. His is the honor. His is the praise. And you and I have the, the opportunity to share in His glory. To share in that great glory that God has given to His Son, Jesus Christ. So we enter in to his reward when we come to him and we understand, Lord, it's from you. I'll do it through you and unto you will be the glory. Do you have gifts in your life? 
Do you have things that make you remarkable? Everyone in here has something that makes them remarkable. Something that makes you unique or different. That gift is from Him. And if you'll use it through His grace, you will be for his, it will be for His glory. It will be for His praise. The graveyard is full of songs that were never sung and books that were never written and lives that were never impacted because they didn't take the gifts that God gave them and use them for God. But if you will take what He's given you and say, God, through your grace, I'm going to use this gift for your power, then it will be unto His glory and it will be, and it will make an impact in this life and in the life to come. His is the glory. Maybe someone says, why? Why does He get all the glory? Why does He get all the praise? Well, I'll give it, I'll give it to you like this by way of comparison. Let me compare for you the last king of Israel and the first king of the new Israel. The last king of Israel was given a message from the prophet. The Babylonians had arrived on the borders of Israel. Soon the nation would fall and come into a period of exile. The prophet comes to the king. He says, look, here's what God says. If you will surrender yourself and turn yourself in to the king of Babylon, he will arrest you and he will take you into Babylon, but he will spare the city of Jerusalem. And if you will surrender, you can save Jerusalem. You can save the city of God. The king said, are you kidding me? You want me to turn myself in? You want me to surrender? He refused to surrender. He refused to sacrifice himself for the saving of Jerusalem. And so the Bible tells us what happened to him. He was uh, captured by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem absolutely to the ground. They tore down the temple that had been built by Solomon. They destroyed the walls around the city and they burned its gates. And as for the king, now in chains, they, they put before him his sons whom they executed in his sight. And then they gouged out his eyes so that the last thing he would ever remember seeing was the killing of his sons. And he was taken off to Babylon as a, as a subject and as a captive. This, friends, by way of mention, is the reward of every person who God gives influence, but who won't use it for the good of others. God says, if you won't take what I've given you and make it useful for somebody else, or be a blessing and a salvation to somebody else, then I won't be able to stand up for you. But this king was a an antitype. He was a comparison to the king who was to come. For you see, now Israel has a new king. His name is Jesus He's the son of the living God. And the father said to him, son, if you will go to the cross, if you will go to Jerusalem and lay your life down on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners, not only will you save the city of Jerusalem and not only will you save the Jewish people, but you will save every man, woman and child who will come to you by faith. And Jesus said, I will go. And he did not withhold himself, but he sacrificed himself. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. And he laid down his life on the cross. And the king of glory was laid in a borrowed tomb. And he laid there in dark in darkness for three days. But on the third day, the son of the living God arose with power and with great glory. Come on, give him praise this morning. For he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. His is the kingdom and the power and the glory. There is no other but Jesus. And to him 
be all of the praise. That's why Him. That's why He gets all the glory. Because the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ. Who although He existed in the form of God. Did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He took on the form of a bondservant. And became obedient unto death. Even death on the cross. And for this reason. God so highly exalted him. And gave him the name. Which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus. Not Buddha. At the name of Jesus. Not Mohammed. At the name of Jesus. Not the Virgin Mary. At the, at the name of Jesus. Not Father Abraham. At the name of Jesus, not Pastor Isaac or Kingsway Church, but at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you stand with me this morning? Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. For how long? For four years, four more years, forever, he's king of kings, forever. He'll never retire, he'll never resign, he'll never die, he'll never be impeached. The whole world can protest him, he remains king. The day is coming when all will acknowledge it, but today... I want you to take courage in this fact. His kingdom rules. His rules must govern your life. His power will subdue the powers of the enemy in your life. And if you'll live your life for his glory, you'll find him doing things in you and through you that you never could have imagined. I want to open up this altar. Let's make this a house of prayer. Every person in here, would you just come into this altar? Let's bring God our worship, our submission, our petition, our confession, and our praise. Let's just come before Him with humility. And say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive our debtors. For yours and yours alone is the kingdom and the power and the glory.